Hello everybody, this is Dan Woods here at Early Adopter Research and I'm this week at RSA 2019 in San Francisco talking to a lot of cybersecurity experts. With me right now is Rajarshi Gupta, VP of AI at Avast Software, a cybersecurity vendor. Uh, what we're going to do is talk to about the three questions we've been asking everybody else and also a bonus question uh, about how AI works in cybersecurity and how to evaluate the claims that people make about AI. So, but first, I'd like to have him explain Avast software and what it does so that we can understand where he's coming from. Sure, so Avast is one of the largest consumer security companies in the world. We have almost 300 million PC users and, 100, and 140 million mobile users. So that's a very large customer base from which we get our data and we evaluate security in from, in, from all of those customers. And what exactly does the product do? So our primary product is antivirus. So we protect people from, from the different things, from the different files that they see, and it's traditional antivirus as you know it. But we of course have a large suite of other security products that includes VPN, that includes cleaner, that includes <coughs> a, a small and medium business product for enterprises, um, as well as products that geared towards family-based security for our telco partners. And they sell those through their channel? And they sell those through their channels. And I assume all the other ones are sold through channels as well? So the consumer products are, are direct, to, direct to consumers, and we sell them through our, through our uh, direct marketing and, uh, and, and so on. Uh, the, um, the, telco are, the telco products for family safety are sold through our telco partners. And then the small and medium businesses are, of course, used through our usual uh, enterprise channels. Excellent. Well, uh, what we're going to talk today about is some issues that have been coming up that I've, I've, I've examined related to cybersecurity trends. And then I'd love to talk to you about how to evaluate AI claims that vendors make. Um, the first question I have is about a zero trust. And so it seems like that, that uh, uh, you know, in the enterprise space, you know, you've got uh, the idea of the, the the perimeter is always in place. But yes. then when when you think about the, the ideal model of zero trust, the idea is that the perimeter should go away. And then you should just be able to protect the device, you know, uh, and, and protect and, and allow access based on, you know, what you know about the person. And there's no, you know, safety zone anymore. But in practice, we're just not seeing that model be put into place. Most people are have a perimeter still, and then they sometimes people go outside of that perimeter where they, they seem to be in a more zero trust environment. But it's it's not uh, what you know zero trust was intended to be. Given that complexity and that confusion, what do you think zero trust really means? So I think uh, so. The first thing you mentioned is that that people still follow a perimeter model, and in general for an enterprise, the perimeter model is really doesn't work because it's a simple law of probability if you imagine that any any device from the perimeter that is going out to the world has a one percent chance of being infected well then if you have a thousand devices then the chance that you're infected is one minus 9.99 to the power of um, to the power of thousand which is absolutely almost nearly one so that means if you have any reasonable number of devices, a few hundred, a thousand, you will always be breached by somebody or the other. So therefore, the, in, in, to look futuristically, it should entirely be a zero trust model, whereby you don't imagine that you have a perimeter and, you, and things inside should be unprotected. 
but the model should absolutely be such that that people that get access people that need are, are the ones who need the access and people get access based on what they are doing what is their environment and what are they trying to access so as a security researcher i am very strong proponent of the zero trust model you're saying that that, that it's just a de facto rational security policy yes Without it, you're really not doing a good job. Of Absolutely. The perimeter, you can never trust that the perimeter will not be breached because with almost probability one, your perimeter will be breached. And what I've seen is that there are a couple of companies that are completely cloud-based, where all the applications are in the cloud, where uh, everybody is using cloud infrastructure for, for all of their, their, um, their work. Uh, and uh, they actually don't have a perimeter. You know, and, and usually it's unusual companies that have been born in the cloud and things like that, but almost everybody else does uh, uh, have, have some sort of perimeter. Do you see that changing anytime Yeah, soon? so I think um, you mentioned the point, I mean, I expected you to ask the follow-up question about where the industry is going, and indeed the industry is going towards much more of a cloud-based model, whereby many things are going to the cloud. So over there, there is of course no concept of a perimeter. You still, have the, you still have the concept that you need to protect your endpoints and it's up to the centralized cloud to ensure that the, that the endpoints that are accessing the cloud is not affected, uh, is not corrupted or it's not uh, been breached already. Um, so that is, the, sort of, that is the major industry trend that is moving us away from perimeter. The only other place I've seen where people are getting close to getting rid of the perimeter are companies like Google, who invented the whole idea of this perimeterless security in their Beyond Core model. And it just seems that very slowly people are going to become more like them. Right. So I think you know Google is a company that did a great job by by first adopting the Beyond Core model and then by by sharing that with the rest of the world through their white papers and the and their best practices and so on. So yes, if you ask me as a personal believer, that is a great model. And that is the model I was describing, which is you let people have access based on where they are, what are they doing, what kind of device are they on, and what do they need. And based on this, there is no zero and one in the security world. It's always probabilities. You are either more likely to be infected, more likely to be risky, or you're less likely to be risky. And depending on what you are doing and how, how valuable the thing is that you are trying to do, it is a model that's worth pursuing. Excellent. So now I want to move on to the next question about portfolio pruning of cybersecurity. It seems like at every generation of cybersecurity, we get more and more solutions. And it seems like that we never have any sort of pruning going on where a new solution removes the need for pre previous generations of solutions, where we, we kind of become uh, a smaller uh, portfolio of more powerful components. Uh, why do you think that uh, we haven't gotten to the point of really pruning the portfolio, and, and what will it take for us to actually start creating uh, portfolios that are are, have a smaller number of components in them. So I wouldn't completely agree with your statement though that no pruning goes on. So okay. I, I used to, I have worked in the enterprise security world before and one of the things that you're always doing when you're trying to sell to a CISO is the fact that you are describing whether you're going after, you're going after replacement dollars or you're going after new dollars. 
So in general, it is true that when a CISO officer, a large CISO company, a CISO of a large company is trying to um, evaluate the uh, any new security player, they do look at it in the terms of whether it's replacement versus new. Having said that, what really starts to happen is that two things are happening. So first of all, there is new dollars every year, and new dollars means it's easier to get the new dollars than the replacement dollars. So it's always easier to say this is extra security. That's number one. The other point is that new threats are coming, coming on continuously, and old threats are not going away. If you just look at what we were describing before, people still have a lot of laptops, you do. And therefore, all the perimeter-based security that people needed and the endpoint security people needed are still there. But then, a lot of stuff has moved to the cloud. So therefore, people need to add the cloud security models. And now, people are adding like hundreds and thousands of IoT devices in their, in their offices. So you need IoT security. So it's not, it's not necessarily the fact that people are adding all the security. It's the fact that the world is getting more complex and we are putting more devices into the mix. We are putting more new technology into the mix. And every one of them has a, increases the security, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the security risk surface, surface the yeah, risk yeah. surface or the attack surface. And therefore, uh, that leads to more and more complexity. But you would think that at some point, it would be possible to have new componentry that you know would be able to uh, reduce the footprint. But but what you're saying, and and and, and, and often when you're you know, these replacement dollars, you're not really pruning. You're just saying I'm getting a better web application firewall than, than the worst one. It's not sort of pruning in the sense I mean. That's actually a very good point. So I think it's it's up to the CISOs of the world to evaluate the uh, security uh, security solutions and realize that certain solutions do become obsolete and you don't need them anymore. And uh, I, I cannot disagree with you that there is not enough pruning in the system. There is a bloating and, and that becomes itself a more complexity because how all these different security uh, solutions act with each other is a challenge. Uh, so if I can, if I should just answer your question, should we try to prune the total amount of security software that is there? The answer is absolutely yes. Um, but you, you can imagine that, you know, it's an expanding balloon and you're trying to cover it with the minimum amount of surface. Right, right, so right. There, is, there is the two-sided two forces going on. You should and, and uh, try to reduce it, but realize that your attack surface does keep increasing. Got it. Um, the uh, the growth of the attack service essentially drives the. Dri I mean, yeah, I think, I think the, the there is naturally there's a hype and there is sales and all this thing, but there is a true technical reason, and that's the one I'm focusing on, which is the fact that the attack surface keeps growing as you introduce more devices well, and more complex well, devices. Well, here's a here's a specific question about this. How many years has it been, 10 years, that people have said antivirus is dead? But yet we have still antivirus vendors with big booths and lots of users here and at, at RSA. McAfee, Symantec, you, others. Yeah. Um, you know, why do people keep saying antivirus is dead? What do they mean and, and, and why 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 is the solution persisted so long? Okay, so I think that's a great question for someone like Avaz, who is whose primary business is in the field of PC antivirus and we are actually we've been gaining market share and we've been gaining in the number of people who are using it because simply that the problem has not gone away. It's not 
we people still see a vast amount of of attacks that happen through files that come through your website or javascripts or files that are downloaded from the machine or comes in your email none of these problems have gone away av will go away when v the viruses go away and the viruses are not going away and anytime soon so why do people say antivirus is dead because they've been saying that right I uh, clearly I mean you know this is the exact I mean, I'm not I'm not No no you're not telling me anything you know no and I think the people who are saying it um, uh, there's a bit of wishful thinking that this is a solved problem and it's not and then there's of course the hype coming from companies who are trying to pursue or project a different kind of problem or different kind of solution who feel or trying to convince people that antivirus is no longer necessary So my next question is about cloud migration how do you think the migration to the cloud will affect the cybersecurity market. I mean, right now we have mostly on-premise solutions with some cloud boosting going on. Yes. Um, we do have some cloud-specific solutions, mostly around either gateways or uh, cloud um, uh, cloud security themselves. So, how does how is the migration to the cloud going to affect cyber cybersecurity? Uh, so, so. Like most play things, it's a two-sided, two-sided coin. So uh, the the positive side, and I'll give examples of of both the positive and the negative. On the positive side, um, the Android marketplace and the uh, Apple App Store are great examples when a very centralized cloud-based model is able to reduce the prevalence of malware by significant margins. And they have been able to do it by centralizing their their security and and a, in fact putting it a putting a very uh, strict filter on everything that you put in. Unlike on your computers or on your email, every app that you get on your phone gets quote unquote vetted to some extent before it comes to it. So that's a place where centralized cloud-based security is trying to be effective and is good for the people. Now. The exact flip side of the coin is, if you put all your information into the cloud, it becomes a much bigger target. So this complete slew of, of many, many attacks, like the Marriott attack or the British Airways attack or whichever one you see, they are all happening because people are keeping all the information in one place, which makes it very lucrative for people to go after them. If everyone kept their private data on, on their own computers, yes, people could possibly steal it, but it wouldn't be as cost effective. And by putting everything in one place, you're making it very lucrative, and then people go after it, and there's not enough security, so when you lose it, you lose a lot. Okay, and so uh, now uh, uh, let's talk about that question about evaluating AI claims. Um, if you go, you just mentioned an article in Forbes where it said that half of all uh, companies that claim to have AI-powered solutions don't really have AI-powered solutions. Anybody in the tech business doesn't need to be told about how the latest trend always becomes associated with your product, whether it's cloud washing or you know working and powering with containers or yes. uh, you know all sorts of other things that in the past, big data, right. whatever it is, you know your 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 product becomes associated with. That's that's just kind of like an old. Uh, pattern in technology marketing. Um, but in the world of AI, you know, we have this interesting phenomenon because it's so large and wide and it's real. We now finally have 
the data that we never had before. Mm -hmm. We have the computing resources on demand that we never had before. And those two things have allowed us to make algorithms that have actually been around for 30 years actually yeah. work. Because the AI that most people are using, very very little of it is new. It was all developed a while ago. Yes. It's just that it's relevant now because we have data and computing and also the, the way to, to deliver yes. it. So, um, but now I'm a, 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 a buyer and somebody comes to me with a product and says, hey, I've got a great AI product. How do you deal with that as a buyer? And and evaluate that claim so that you can understand whether it's meaningful or not. Yes, so I think um, I, 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 I totally agree with you that there has been a lot of hype around AI in every field and in particular in the field of security and everybody is saying that and it's true and it's a big challenge for the uh, for the CEO or the CIO or the CISO to figure out who's saying the who's saying uh, the truth and who's um, you know expanding on their actual solution. So I think there are some fairly key questions. I mean, short of doing a full-fledged test, there's a fairly few questions that can be asked to determine this thing. And the first and most important question is, what are you training your models on? So in the field of security, it's not terribly easy to find the vast amounts of data. So when a company or a startup comes to you with a solution that says AI, the first and most important question to ask is, what data have you trained your models on? Then evaluate, is this data coming from, from five companies or 500 companies? Is this data coming from five companies that are all the same type, size and thing? Because it's not just the quantity of data that matters, it's the diversity of data. So if someone is building a, their entire model based on data from one large enterprise, it's probably going to be a bad model which will not work in other places. So the quantity of data and the diversity of data are two very, very important things. And that can be figured out without actually running a test. Got it, so that's sort of like a quality benchmark. If somebody fails that test, then you have a right to be very suspicious. Yes, absolutely. So let's say they pass that test. What would be the next thing you would ask? Okay, so once they pass the test about the data, you need to ask them about the, the type of models that they're building and then uh, show real examples. And also the another very interesting question is the evolution of the model. Because security as a field of AI is very unique. It's about the only field of AI where we really have an adversary. It's the only field, not vision, not, not uh, speech, not natural languages, not self-driving cars. Security is the only field of AI where we have a true adversary that's trying to evade your models. And that adversary will do everything in his or her power to evade the model that you have built. So it's absolutely essential for security models to be adaptive and to be able to adapt very quickly. So the big second order question is, what is your retraining strategy and how fast can you adapt? Uh, adapt? Now, when you talked about the, 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 the type of models they're building, like your average person like me, you know, maybe I could hear the, you know, uh, you know, convolutional neural yes. networks or recurrent neural networks, but I wouldn't really have an idea of whether that fits 
the problem well or whether it doesn't. I'm assuming that if you did know about those things and knew about the problem, you would have a better idea of whether it fits well. Right. So, but I but, but but that's not something we can get at as buyers, really. No. So as a buyer, as a buyer, you know, that's why I emphasize a lot more my first question and my third question. The middle question is also important. So over there, as a buyer, you can't expect every person to know. But if you either have uh, AI experts in your staff or you consult with AI experts or advisors who are AI experts, it is possible to tell the type of models that are being used and, and, and to get a sense of it. I wouldn't call it because um, you know, it's hard to evaluate those models very quickly, but you can get a sense of, I mean, let's put it this way, you can tell when the models are bad. It's not, all, it's not easy to say the models will be good. Got it. But if you tell me the kind of algorithm you're using, I mean, take a very simple example, right? If you tell me that you are trying to, uh, you know, you're trying to fly to, um, uh, you, you need to go to Europe. And I, I ask you, you know, what kind of conveyance are you using? And, and you tell me I have a rowboat. That gives me a good idea that you will not make it. Right. But if you tell me I have a ship, well, then I need to ask a lot more follow-up questions to find out what kind of shape and so on. So it's, it's like that. Got it. And, and it's not necessarily you could do it. You could gather some evidence, but you could hear the way they tell their story and yes. how sophisticated it is. Yes. And, and you could ask questions about that to poke around to see if they have really good answers. That's right. But you'll need an AI expert to do that poking around. <coughs> but the first and the third thing, which is how, how do you get the data and then how do you retrain and how, do you, uh, how fast can you adapt the model, those are questions that every good AI company should be able to answer. Um, the next thing uh, I want to ask is just three bonus questions that I ask everybody. The first is, do you think people would be better off investing in more operational discipline, such as better configuration management, patch management, uh, you know, inventory of their assets, and automation, rather than investing in another you know, cybersecurity component? Ah, that's a hard question. I mean, clearly people should be doing that, and that certainly helps. And, um, and uh, you know, if you go back to old English, it says prevention is better than cure, and it says a stitch in time saves nine. <laughs> right. So all of that is arguing that, yes, the dollar spent doing good hygiene is, is almost always better than trying to fix the problem after it has happened. Got it. Why do you think people, you know, seem to kind of under-invest under in that sort of thing? Um, partly because of the human in the loop, a lot of the, um, I mean, it's much easier to, uh, to buy and deploy a cybersecurity solution than to train 5,000 people in your organization not to use 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 as a password. It's a, sort of the facetious answer, but the true answer is that too. I mean, it is much easier to deploy, um, uh, in most cases, bad hygiene or bad cyber hygiene and bad uh, bad configuration is coming from human beings who are doing it for their simplicity. So that my next question was about cyber culture and training. How is it that, who have you seen done a good job of actually, you know, training the human perimeter, which is a very important uh, 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 perimeter, and you know, how can you encourage the, the, the culture of cybersecurity you know, in an organization? You know, who does a good job of this outside of the usual suspects like, you know, you know invest, uh, like financial services and in the intelligence communities? Uh, you know, in cybersecurity, there's a statement that there are only two types of companies, ones that have been breached and ones that don't know they've been breached. 
So, uh, so it's a hard question. I don't really know the answer, and you know, I don't work in enterprise security, and uh, because we are a consumer company, so I can't really give you a list of companies who I feel are better than one or better than others. No, no, that's fine. I see that in in the consumer space, for example. We are we are definitely seeing major change, major um, uh, differences in cyber hygiene. Uh, for example, around the world, there are parts of the world which have much better cyber hygiene than others. Oh, really? Like, yes. Uh, cool. So that's a very interesting. You know, we've been recently been doing a research study with uh, Stanford University, whereby we've been looking at the risk profile of homes and devices in your home. And as part of that, one of the results we, 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 we found was that um, some regions of the world, like North America and Europe, have a percentage of single, few single digit percent of, and I'm quoting these numbers from my head, but maybe, you know, two, three percent of, of their devices that have poor passwords. On the other hand, exact same type of devices, let's say your Wi-Fi routers, have poor passwords in the order of 12, 14 percent in parts of Asia and parts of Eastern Europe. So, I mean, and I'm talking about that's a five to six X difference in the percentage of devices that have bad uh, software. Got it. Um, this is coming from two different things. So it's the, it's not only just coming from the human perimeter, it's also coming from the fact that devices that are sold, some of the devices force you to change the password and some of the devices don't force you and, and are perfectly okay having admin admin as their password. So it's a combination of, of configuration, automated configuration and you know forcing. Uh, if you remember correctly, right, until about three years ago, but your Wi-Fi password did not need to be changed. So you know, you walk into anybody's house, you could almost surely open up your laptop and log into somebody's <laughs> Wi-Fi around you. Since uh, WPA2 came around and they forced people to change it, it's gotten a lot better. Got it, got it. So, so now, um, the last question I have is about cyber insurance. A lot of CISOs and CTOs and CIOs are being forced to buy cyber insurance. Many of them don't like it because it, uh, they feel that it's bad insurance and it doesn't pay and it's easy to you know, get out of, there's a lot of escape hatches for the insurance company. But uh, arguing against it vigorously doesn't necessarily, you very rarely do, do people win that argument. Um, so, how can you take the demand for cyber security insurance and turn it into something positive? Okay, so I, I, I'm not an expert in this at all. I've only been in the in the area as working in AI and as working in cybersecurity. We are much more in the business of quantifying the risk, of figuring out how good or bad something is. Now, whether that should convert to a price point for, for the company and whether they should be doing... I mean, this is how insurance business happens, right? People right. calculate the risk of you getting into a car accident and sell you car insurance, and they gave you a percentage of the risk of you dying and sell you life insurance. So in that sense, insurance is much older than cybersecurity, right? right. So, you know, I mean, the Merchant of Venice is built on insurance. Right, so, but, but, uh, but, but, but the data isn't there yet. That's right. The actuarial models are very good about when you and I will die, they're very bad about whether or not our companies will be breached. Um, that is true, that is true. I think, uh, actually, that's a very good scientific point, right? So it's, uh, it's probably easier, it's a much easier question to calculate um, which company is more or less likely to be breached than to calculate which company is uh, going to be um, 
is what is the actual probability of being breached. Because the probability of being breached has a very important angle, important player, which is the attacker. Right. So, you know, the, your chance of dying depends on what you do, but it also depends on whether your country suddenly goes to war and somebody invades your country. So it's that second piece which makes the, makes the, the you know, the sort of the, uh, the absolute probability calculation very difficult. But the relative probability calculation, we do have a lot of data right now. To, to say, here are the factors that will increase your risk, here yes. are the factors that will reduce yes. your risk. and the fact that, you know, you are doing better than other companies or you're doing worse than other companies. So you could use it basically as a benchmarking thing. Yes, it is, that's, okay, that's a nice way of putting it. Benchmarking is easier, absolute probability is very hard because you don't, it's, you can't really model the attacker as well. Well, Rajarshi, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. Okay, thank you so much. It was, uh, it was a very nice conversation.